Thank you, Naomi. Today, uh, we come to the end of uh, the farewell discourses, the upper room conversation. A, a long conversation uh, that we actually began looking at um, way back at the end of January. This is um, John's recollection of a conversation that took place on the night before Jesus was crucified. A conversation between Jesus and his disciples. We're not finished just yet with the Gospel of John. We will continue to read this Gospel together as we travel through Easter. And as uh, Mike said last week, um, the actual conversation, the actual discourse between Jesus and his disciples, well, actually, that finished last week at the end of chapter 16. So as we've just heard, this week, Jesus moves into prayer. It's the longest and most famous of Jesus' recorded prayers. And this prayer is sometimes referred to as his high priestly prayer. This morning, uh, we're only just going to scratch the surface of it. There is so much in it. But what I hope to do is just to set up, hopefully, some useful signposts so that you can keep on coming back to it uh, and, and dig for gold there. The prayer itself can be roughly divided up into three sections. In the first section, verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays concerning himself. In the second section, verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for his disciples, meaning in this first instance the 12 apostles, the disciples who were with him at that very moment. He prays for them. And in the third section, verses 20 to 26, Jesus expands this prayer into a prayer concerning all who would come to believe in him through their message, which of course includes us here today. Now, a good place to start whenever we study John's Gospel to together is to remember that John is writing, it would seem, for Christians who have already read one or more of the other three Gospels, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those three Gospels, they also include Jesus praying on the night before he was crucified, the prayer of Gethsemane. And in those Gospels, we also hear Jesus at prayer. And all three of those Gospels bring to us a similar report. Having shared the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus moves up out of the uh, upper room and out to the Mount of Olives. There he finds a place to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. He calls Peter, James, and John to come with him as he goes a little bit further to sit, and, uh, and, he, and he prays, and he calls them also likewise to pray. And going a little bit further, Jesus falls with his face to the ground to pray, wrestling fiercely with what is about to happen, knowing that he now faces imminent torture, crucifixion and death. Three times he prays, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. 
between these three prayers. He returns to his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and finds them sleeping. He rebukes them, saying, Couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And immediately upon praying his prayer a third time, Judas Iscariot, their traitor, immediately arrives with a crowd, with an armed guard, and Jesus is arrested. These accounts emphasize the humanity of Jesus and the humanity of the disciples. Jesus overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, so Matthew, or deeply distressed and troubled, so Mark, or as Luke puts it, being in anguish, prayed earnestly, his sweat falling like drops of blood to the ground. Jesus desiring from his disciples simply that they keep watch with him, companionship at this moment of excruciating trial wrestles his own will into submission to the plan of God. If the choice is between his own will and the will of God, Jesus chooses the will of God. Yet the disciples, also overwhelmed, exhausted from grief and confusion, are unable to keep their eyes open, unable to pray. So then, as the Passover meal comes to a conclusion in John's gospel, we are expecting to see and to read that Jesus and his disciples, we're expecting to read that they sing a hymn, go to the Mount of Olives, then prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, then Judas Iscariot arrive. But actually, in John's gospel, we go straight from this prayer in the upper room to bang, straight into Judas arriving right at the very start of the next chapter. John knows what we know. He's showing us something different, something that he feels is needed, perhaps for the sake of balance. And the prayer begins and ends with words concerning glory. As Jesus prays concerning himself, it's all about glory. Verse 1, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in, the presence, in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And He finishes his prayer, and it's all about glory. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, 
so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Glory. The, the Hebrew word glory means something like heaviness, weightiness. To give glory is to recognize and attribute weightiness, substance, worth. It is to ascribe greatness. In a sense, to, it is to make somebody look good because perhaps they actually are good. Glory. It's a key word in John's Gospel. Um, in total, Matthew, Mark, and Luke use the word 14 times. John by himself uses the word 17 times. It's a key word. This is an important idea for John. Glory. And for John, glory is the manifest presence of the truth about God. Glory is the manifest presence of the truth about God. That's what glory is. And glory, like gold, is transactional. It is given, it is bestowed, it is brought, it is exchanged by one party on another. Now, glory and honor are important to human beings, and glory and honor are important to God. Uh, yesterday afternoon at the 5 p.m. service, uh, Tim did the Bible reading, and he did it as, um, as a short play. Um, and it was extraordinary. It was absolutely extraordinary. Apart from anything else, he'd memorized the entire prayer, something I considered to be glorious and amazing. <laughs> Um, now, for a cumulative total of four years, I worked with Tim as an actor, as many of you know. One might assume that actors are interested in fame, uh, which is the heady mixture of, mixture of glory and honor. But I encountered a paradox. In order to be effective as an actor, you need to set your own dignity at naught. It is only in forsaking the possibility of glory and honor that you generate glory and honor. It is only insofar as I was able to completely be completely disinterested in my own dignity, utterly unselfconscious. It was only that, it was only then that I could serve God as an actor. We are all interested in glory and honor. We've come here today in order to bring public glory and honor to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do this because we know that it is right, and we do this because it is pleasurable. And if the choice is between our own dignity and the glory and honor of God, we know which is more important. Indeed, in order to be effective in bringing glory and honor to God, we must set the value of our own dignity at naught. But 
Back to the text. Four pictures of glory. The glory of the cross. The glory of the incarnation. The glory Jesus had before the incarnation. And the glory of unity. Four pictures of glory. The first picture of glory is the glory of the cross. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And in John's Gospel, right from the start, we've been traveling towards the hour. And Jesus has said things like, this is not my hour. My time has not yet come. It's not time yet. It's not the hour. Well, now it is the hour. Now it is the time, the time of Christ's crucifixion. From those other three Gospels, we hear and know that Jesus doesn't want to be crucified. But he is willing if it is God's will. We hear and understand that Jesus is willing to be crucified out of love for the Father. My Father, if it is possible, take this cup away from me, but not what I will, but what you will. It's out of love for the Father. It's also out of love for us. My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away from humanity... Unless I drink it for them, then your will be done. Jesus, out of love for the Father and out of love for us, takes upon himself the punishment we deserved, the judgment we deserved, in order that we might be saved, rescued from the wrath of God, from the judgment of God, from the punishment, from the condemnation. It is glorious. This is love. This is love that makes a difference. This is love that's sacrificial. This is love that buys us something real. This is love. This is glory. This is the manifest presence of the truth about God. This is the glory of God. The crucifixion of Jesus is many things. You can say many things about the crucifixion of Jesus and be right, but one of the things we need to understand about the crucifixion of Jesus is that it is the most beautiful thing. It is the most beautiful thing that has ever happened on planet Earth. It is glory, the manifest presence of the truth about God. The first picture of glory. The second picture of glory, the glory of the incarnation. Verse 4, I have brought you glory. Transactional. He's generated glory and he's given it to God. I have brought you glory, Father, on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. The earthly ministry of Jesus, teaching, preaching, parables, miracles, healings, um, deliverance, raising people from the dead, parties, weddings, funerals. It shows us who God is. It is the manifest presence of the truth about God. We can find out who God is by reading about Jesus and seeing for ourselves. And it is glorious, grace and truth. 
And by such works, by such ministry, together with the work of the Holy Spirit, people came to believe in Jesus. And glory came to the Son through them. And it says that in verse 10. But going back to verse 2, for you granted him, the Son of God, for you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. As, um, as Mike um, explained last week, uh, thinking of eternal life as everlasting life, as, that, as this is translated in some of the older versions of the Bible, um, thinking about it as, as the gift of unending, an unending, inexhaustible supply of time, it's not so much mistaken as it is inadequate. Eternal life, when Jesus speaks of it in John's gospel, it's got nothing to do with time. He doesn't mention time. What he mentions is relationship. It's eternal life is that intimate relationship with God that, that Jesus has made possible for us. It is knowing the Father. It is a relationship of knowing and being known. And, and we receive that relationship when we receive Jesus, the Son, whom he sent. Ultimately, eternal life, which began for each of us the moment we first believed. Eternal life is being transformed into a son of God in, ex in every and in exactly the way that Jesus is the son of God having that same relationship of intimacy with the Father and with the Spirit as Jesus has, being loved by the Father in exactly the same way and to the exactly the same measure as he loves the Son and the Spirit loving us as, as the Spirit loves the Son. It is being conformed into the image and likeness of the Son to the glory of God. It is having Christ's authority and power. And it is having eternal, capital S, spirit giving life inside of us. Streams of living water flowing out from the one who believes. Eternal life. It is the manifest presence of the truth about God. And once again, we see that eternal life is the gift of God. And those of, of us who have eternal life have eternal life ultimately not because we chose Jesus, but because the Father chose us before the beginning of time and gave us to his Son. Verse 6, I have revealed your name to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have obeyed your word. That's the second picture of glory, the glory of the incarnation. A third picture of glory, Christ's pre-incarnation glory. Verse 5, And now, Father, 
glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And Jesus returns to this theme at the end of the prayer. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Possibly um, the most important thing that John, our author, wants us to understand, wants us to know about Jesus right from the start of his gospel is that the person that we know of as Jesus of Nazareth is an eternal person. It's the first thing he talks about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And uh, for those of you who uh, like to keep track of the nine different ways in which the New Testament uses the word world, here the word world means universe, cosmos, creation, all that God has made. Jesus was with God before the creation was created. Jesus was and is and always will be creator. And in recent times... The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen His glory, the manifest presence of the truth about God. The Creator became creation. And as co-creator with the Father, we know, um, the one we know is Jesus. He had glory, a glory we cannot yet perhaps comprehend except in outline. Proverbs chapter 8 in the Old Testament, puts it this way, I was there when you set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so that the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence. Rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in the human race. We can only guess what that eternal glory might be like, perhaps shining with unimaginable brilliance and radiance, the beauty of his holiness. There are many Old Testament passages and New Testament passages that might prepare us but when Jesus returns, the whole world will see Jesus in his glory. The glory he had before the creation of the creation of the universe. A third picture of glory. A fourth picture of glory. Unity. The glory of unity. Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Just, Father, as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, the glory of being one, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Um, Theologically speaking, Christian disunity is a contradiction in terms. It's oxymoronic. Uh, To be one with the Father and the Son is also logically, it has to be, if we're one with the Father and with the Son in the the one spirit, then we're one with uh, each other. We're one with all those uh, who are one with God. It is an organic impossibility to be one with the Father and the Son and yet not one with each other. I mean, that just couldn't be. Nevertheless, at least at face value, there seems to be copious volumes of evidence of Christian disunity everywhere you look. And given that there seems to be a superabundance of Christian denominations, there are always attempts to find or generate or gain Christian unity. So what exactly is Christian unity. Ultimately, it resists definition. To be sure, it's not the absence of diversity. The church has always been and needs to be a place of all kinds of cultural and ethnic diversity, with diversity also in terms of doctrine and practice. The diversity of doctrine and belief cannot be pushed too far, of course. Since about the 4th century, the Christian church has used various creeds to outline the basic, essential, non-negotiable substance to our faith. Christian unity, though, is not discerned doctrinally. It is discerned spiritually. But that doesn't make doctrine irrelevant nor are splits and factions necessarily evidence of disunity. Sometimes congregations or denominations do indeed split. Sometimes they split in the sense of of a division that refuses, both sides refuse to acknowledge the other side, even as Christians. That does indeed happen. That's a true split. And other times, though, congregations or denominations split in order to move in different directions, to take up different opportunities and yet remain in fellowship, remain in communion with each other. That's what happened when St. Matt split, so to speak, to form St. Barnabas, where we're here today. Still in fellowship, still sharing the cup, still recognizing each other as brother and sister Christians. A split is not necessarily evidence of disunity. And we note from verse 23 that Christian unity is a work in progress. The Lord works patiently in our lives and in the world and in the life of his one global fellowship of believers so as to, in the end, bring them to a finished or perfected or complete oneness or unity. Verse 23. 
Christian history would tend to indicate to us, when we look at the history of the church, we would see that whenever we make Christian unity the aim, we miss it by a comfortable margin. But our text today would imply that whenever Christians make the glory of God their aim, then Christian unity is likely to be an unintended outcome. And in such circumstances, Christian unity, the single-minded pursuit of the glory of God through the revelation of the Father in the Son and the Son in the Father, then Christian unity, when it happens, because God's people set their eyes on glorifying him, when that happens, that Christian unity is unimaginably powerful. Enormous authority in the spiritual realms. Then the world will know that you sent me. And it's widely understood. It's widely experienced. It's widely seen that whenever Christians across denominational boundaries raise holy hands in prayer, um, then they often see extraordinary answers to their prayers. The power and glory of Christian unity. Four pictures of glory from John 17, Christ's high priestly prayer. The glory of the cross. The manifest presence of the truth about God. The glory of the cross. The glory of the incarnation and the earthly ministry of Jesus. The glory, thirdly, that the Son of God had before the creation of the world, pre-incarnation glory. And lastly, the glory of Christian unity. We began today by remembering from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus did not want to die. He did not want to be crucified. To use our language, the thought terrified him. To use their language, he was overwhelmed, filled with sorrow to the point of death, extremely distressed, troubled, so fiercely in prayer and so deep in anguish that he perspired as he prayed and his sweat fell to the ground like drops of blood. But if it is the choice between his own will and the will of God, Jesus chooses the will of God, irrespective of the cost to himself. John is showing us something very similar but different. If the choice is between his own welfare and the glory of God, Jesus chooses the glory of the Father, irrespective of the cost to himself. Um, over the past five years, uh, I personally have uh, had some practice in waiting patiently for the outcome of uh, medical tests and pathology reports. Uh, uh, practice, a lot of practice combined with prayer has led to some measurable improvement but I am by no means perfect uh, I am, when I'm waiting for test results I am in the habit of asking people to pray for me and specifically for the results that this test or that report will come back as good news it is right and good that I do that but one of my friends has a different way of praying for me. Very similar, 
but different. He prays that I will glorify God irrespective of the path report, regardless of the outcome, because either way, whatever the pathologist or the radiologist has to say, it will be an outcome through which I can glorify God. And he's absolutely right. And it is a tremendously helpful and useful insight. It doesn't matter what the pathologist says, or the radiologist, or the oncologist, or indeed, different context, the judge, or the boss, or the board of examiners. It doesn't matter what, they, what the outcome might be. It will never be the case that we cannot glorify God our Father through Jesus the Son. Sometimes God saves us from our fears. Sometimes God saves us through our fears. Either way, it will be possible to pray with Jesus, Father, help me to bring you glory today. Whatever happens, may it bring you glory and honor as I trust in you through Jesus Christ, your Son, now and forever. Amen.